Now, one of God's infinite attributes is that he is everywhere. But his word teaches that he is more intensely present whenever and wherever his people have gathered together in gratitude for all he has done for them and with a desire to be near to him, to know him, to love him, and to serve him with all that they have. And, and let me just also mention, there's 27 scriptures that I've backed this up with, but I'm not going to mention them in the preaching. Now, all too often, even his chosen people can be drawn away from God's presence by distractions of daily living in this world that is still under the influence of God's sworn enemy. This is why God's people are exhorted to regularly assemble together in order to encourage one another in the hope they have in Jesus, the Savior. Now, today's passages in Kings, this story shows us that when Solomon constructed the temple to the name of the covenant God of Israel, namely Yahweh, according to his word, and all the people were gathered together and everything was in its proper place, the glory, the glory of God filled his temple in a powerful way. And we'll get more details on this later. Then in the gospel excerpt, we heard Jesus is teaching in symbolic language that his body, and that is now all people who live in the faith of him, is now the true temple of God. So let us now dig a little deeper into God's word in order to make these truths part of who we are and how we live our lives. So we'll start uh, with 1 Kings, and there's two parts to this. First of all, Solomon builds a house for the name of Israel's covenant God. And he did it according to the word of Yahweh. So now let's go through this line by line and dig a little deeper. We're told then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon because he had heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father because Hiram loved David all the days, all the days that they knew each other. Now, Hiram means noble, which is a good name for a king, right? And he was king of the city of Tyre, which means rock. And if you've read anything about Tyre and study Bibles, this whole city was built on a solid rock right on the Mediterranean Sea. And it was some 35 miles northwest of the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee. 
And there is Solomon way down about 100 miles or more farther south in Jerusalem. Now, it says that, um, oh yeah, and if you read back earlier in 2 Samuel, you will see where Hiram had provided trees and workers for David when he built his palace. And if you remember when we were going through Chronicles, David felt kind of guilty. He's living in this glorious palace, and there's God living in a shabby tent. Now, Solomon had to be anointed king because he was not justified to be king by his order of birth. He had an older brother still living. All such kings had to be anointed to be king by a prophet of God. So a prophet anointed him to be king. Then Solomon sent to Hiram explaining that his father was not able to build a house for the name of God, because of all the blood he had shed and all the warfare until his enemies were subdued. But now that Yahweh, his God, and Solomon's making it personal, and that's a good thing at this point in his life, he's caused him Solomon. I have rest now on every side. So... um, I skipped over a little bit about how David living as a warrior was not allowed, but God had told him, Solomon will build it. So Solomon is speaking, giving commands to build a house for Yahweh his God according to the word Yahweh spoke to his father. Now, in addition to the word he spoke to David through Nathan the prophet saying, you won't build me a temple, but I will build out of your line the Messiah. There was also a word that Yahweh spoke as to how the temple would be constructed. Detailed plans, we saw that also as we were going through Chronicles. And now we're told that the Ark of Yahweh is brought up into the temple in the seventh month with sacrifices. So continuing on in the word, and we need to go to chapter 8 for this. At the beginning of chapter 8, Solomon gathered all the leaders of Israel to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh. And we're told there were three groups of leaders— Elders in all the land of Israel, regardless of tribe, the elders who had wisdom, and then the chosen heads of each of the 12 tribes, and then leaders of families within the tribes all came to Solomon in Jerusalem. It's probably 30 to 50 men involved in this. And now that the temple is complete, they will bring up the Ark of the Presidents of the covenant God from where David had left it somewhere below Mount Zion. Now, I found this very interesting. It's just in the last month, I clicked on a Bible dictionary of names. Zion means parched place. Can, can, can you imagine that? That the temple where God lives and gives us living water was constructed in a parched place. But that's what God is like. He refreshes us in a wasteland of a world in which we live. So now that the temple's been built, it's time to carry the ark up. 
And then were assembled to King Solomon, all the men of Israel in the month of Ethanim, which actually means enduring. I didn't know what those names of the months that are in scripture meant. At the feast in the seventh month, then all the elders came and the priests took up the ark. So essentially, all the nation is united. All the Israelites are participating in bringing the ark of Yahweh's presence. And I've given you references from the Torah where he resided in a special way over that ark. It's now to go into the temple dedicated to him. Now, the last of the seven required feasts, and that would be the fall ones, there's the spring ones and the fall ones. This feast of tabernacles was seven days of worship. Okay, And it was in the seventh month after trumpets, after the day of atonement. And again, if you look in Exodus and Deuteronomy, only the Levites could carry the Ark of the Covenant with the poles on their shoulders. And the poles went through rings on the side of the ark. And then we're told the priests and Levites brought up the ark of Yahweh along with the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. Now, I don't know where they stored it. It was a huge temple complex. And all the vessels of the holy place, which was the larger chamber within the temple. Um, the temple was basically twice the size of the tabernacle. So it was originally the holy place was 10 by 10 by 10 cubits. It became 20 by 20 by 20, which is a foot and a half, which is a perfect 30-foot cube in the holiest place. And then the um, holy place was twice as long, and every other dimension was the same. So that's what's happening here. Uh, So the vessels, we would have the lampstand and the bread of the presence. You can look it all up in the Torah. These are also brought up to be in the holy place. Um, And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel were in front of the ark before sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be counted or numbered. So all the people of the congregation of Israel are congregating before their God, and they're all offering the sacrifices that he had instructed them to offer through Moses. Now we get to the climax of our story. Yahweh fills his house with his glorious presence. So first the ark is put where it belongs in the holy of holies in the sanctuary. So when the priest brought the ark of the covenant of Yahweh to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house in the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim spreading their wings over the place of the ark above the ark and its poles. Okay, so the inner sanctuary, which is literally the holy of holies, the most holy place, and only the priest, the high priest, could enter into that place in the tabernacle as well as the temple only on the day of atonement, which uh, was in the fall feast, the middle of the three, only on that one special day, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, only he could enter there uh, with a sacrifice, 
But this was where the God of Israel dwelt among his people in all of his holiness. God is present in his temple, as I said in the beginning, in a very special way. Of course, he's everywhere, but specially there. Now, cherubim are God's worker servant angels. And I've given you three reference. Actually, it would be pronounced cherubim. It's a K, but the King James translated it and transliterated it with a CH. First of all, they guarded the way back to the Garden of Eden. So after God expelled them, he put two warrior cherub angels there so nobody would work their way back to the Garden of Eden before it's time to go to the new paradise. As we saw here, there were also, you know, carved statues representing the reality. They guarded the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. That's the second responsibility they had. And then Ezekiel If you read through it, and it's got more weird symbols in it than the book of Revelation. But when Ezekiel saw the throne of God in heaven, the throne was resting on the cherubim. So some of them were actually assigned to hold up God's throne. Like I said, they're the strong worker, servant, angels. That's just a little extra information. Then we're told the ends of the poles by which the ark was carried, they weren't removed. Now, in the day, they had to move it around whenever God told them to move in the wilderness. But they left it, and they were so long you could see them in the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary But you couldn't see them outside of the temple is what they're saying. And it says, and they are there to this day. While the poles were so long, they kind of poked through the veil, which separated the two places. I think the veil was able to part there. I don't think they punctured it in any way. And when it says this day, that would be before the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 uh, BC, which gives you an idea when this book was written. Okay, now we're told, and this is very interesting for those of you that like to follow how they worship before Jesus came. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone which Moses put there in Horeb, which also means wilderness or desert, or Sinai, where Yahweh made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. Now, originally, and you can find it in Hebrews, and it's in the five books of the Torah, there were three items that were in the presence of the ark, maybe in the ark itself, in the most holy place. In addition to those two stones, there was also the jar of manna, so that they would remember that God fed them miraculously with bread when they were in the wilderness and there was no food. Then also, when they were rebelling against Aaron and his sons, the chosen priests of God, God said, okay, all you tribes, bring a stick, put it before the ark, and we will find out who I have chosen to be the priest and the high priest. And overnight, Aaron's staff, his rod, miraculously budded and produced almonds. 
That used to be there. Both of those have been lost in the time between Moses and Solomon. Then we're told that Yahweh fills the temple with his glory cloud. When the priests came out from the holy place and the cloud filled the house of Yahweh, the priests could not stand to minister before the cloud because the glory of Yahweh filled the house of Yahweh. This is the glory cloud, the presence of Yahweh, which is now present in his temple built by Solomon, powerfully filling it. God is present in his temple. Okay, that was then. But now I believe we need to take note of what was said here and apply it to ourselves. If God's chosen priests could not stand before the fullness of the presence of the three times holy God, we, we must take care when we gather together to worship God. May we have an attitude of grateful humility for what Jesus did for us and what he is now doing for us. And may we be honest about our shortcomings. And may we earnestly pray to surrender our shortcomings to Jesus in faith so he will mature us in the fruit of the Holy Spirit, especially his fruit of strong, life-giving, life-changing love. What makes us think we're any better than these anointed chosen priests? We must humble ourselves before God when we gather together to worship him. And then Solomon said, Yahweh has said to dwell in thick darkness. And I've given you five references. This rare word is is in Deuteronomy and Job and the Psalms. Solomon continues, and I have built an exalted house, a place for you to remain forever. Now the word for dwelling, and, and it's a common word in scripture, is shakan. So when I first started going to Pentecostal churches, I heard all about this Shekinah glory, and I was wondering what it was. And most people don't have a clue, and they misuse it. But what it is, is God's ever-dwelling glory with his people whenever and wherever they gather to give him wholehearted worship. So again, this is true for us as well. May we seek with all our heart, to worship God with his people whenever we are able because his presence will be with us, with us in his house. God is dwelling in his temple. And now let's go to our gospel passage because this is where Jesus just takes everything way above what was a reality before he came as a human being. So in John's gospel, we see for really the first time, and this is a pre-Pentecost statement of this, Jesus' body 
is the true temple. Now, they didn't know what he was talking about when he said it. But Jesus answered and said to them, that means the Jews who were opposing him, not all those, but those opposing him. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So we've got destruction and raising up. And in the broadest sense, what Jesus is saying here is he can raise up whatever people destroy. But he's saying something much more. We now know that he is foreshadowing his death on the cross to pay the penalty for the sins of people, including us. And to rise himself from death, to offer his life to whoever will surrender his or her life to him, to obey him in humble, obedient faith. That's part of the gospel, the good news in a nutshell. But then the Jews opposing him said, this temple was 46 years being built. And will you indeed in three days raise it up? Well, they are taking Jesus very literally. They're assuming he's talking about the glorious physical temple that Herod had spared no expense to make magnificent. To make it magnificent, but it was really more for him than for God. And then the Spirit inspired John to write, but this man, and he means Jesus, was speaking concerning the temple of his body. So Jesus here is emphatically saying that his physical human body in which all of his deity was dwelling and is dwelling would be raised from the death he suffered on the cross on behalf of all humanity who will receive it. And now after Pentecost, the church is the body of Jesus and God's worldwide temple made up of all who are in Jesus by grace through faith. Jesus' body is now God's temple. So may we all find our place in Jesus' body and seek to fulfill it by grace through faith. Not just we who are here in person this morning, although, of course, certainly us, but all who are watching live now or any who may watch and or listen at some later time. And now let's sum the events and the truths up in just a few words. It's, it's not that complicated. When the Ark of the Presence of the covenant God is placed in the inner sanctuary of God's temple. His presence fills the place in overwhelming glory. And then the priests could no longer stand before him because God is present in his temple. And now finally, let us seek him together so he will make us to be suitable vessels to carry his glorious love in Jesus to all our neighbors. That's why we're still here on earth. If we didn't have that mission, we'd be with him. 
but he's assigned us a glorious assignment that all may know his son, the Savior.